Revelation chapter 3. Today in our continuing study of the book of Revelation, we come to the seventh and last church in the seven churches. Just by way of review, I would remind you that these are real churches, literal churches that are being addressed. They were churches found in seven major cities in Asia Minor. They were connected by a semicircular road. That is, if you left the Isle of Patmos, where John was, the nearest city would be Ephesus, and then you would work your way up north, and finally up to Thyatira, and then begin to work your way south. There were more than seven churches in Asia Minor, but John chooses to address these seven, or Jesus through John chooses to address them, and seven is a number with significance in the Bible. As I mentioned when we started, some people think that these seven churches represent seven ages of the church, and this is not correct. Um, such a view, I think, has real problems, and we've discussed this before. John is writing to seven churches. These are literal churches. Now, the number seven does have symbolic importance. In the Bible, seven refers to fullness or completeness in terms of quality or qualitative fullness, the essential nature of the thing. And so by addressing seven churches, in a sense, Jesus is dealing with the churchness, if you wish, of things at that time in history. Ten, by the way, on the other hand, deals with the qualitative fullness. We will see that as we go along in the book of Revelation. So we need to understand that what John writes here is intended for the whole church in every age. The messages to the churches in Asia are to be applied to all. And that's why in each of the seven letters we hear this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So yes, they are seven literal churches, but there is something in the message that is to be applied to churches of all times. What we've seen thus far is that these seven different churches have different issues that are dealt with. Ephesus, the first church, is a church that had fought for true doctrine, true doctrine but in the process had forsaken its first love. It is a church that has discernment without love. Smyrna, a church that was marked by persecution, was about to experience even more persecution, resulting in death, the death of some of its members. But they were faithful. Along with the church in Philadelphia, uh, this church has received no word of correction. Jesus has nothing negative to say about this church. Then Pergamum, a church that was faithful also in the face of persecution, but tolerant of false teaching and false teachers. And so they were faithful to the truth, but tolerant of error. Thyatira was a church that had progressed. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are doing more than you did at first. But this church also had failed to deal with false teachers and false teaching. Where Ephesus was a church that had discernment without love, Thyatira has love, but no discernment. Sardis is a church that is living on its reputation, 
It's all about reputation versus reality. Uh, You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead, Jesus tells them. Philadelphia, like Smyrna, no word of correction is given. It is a church of little strength. This is not spelled out. Simply, we are told it is a church of little strength. But they are a part of the people of God because Jesus, who has the key of David, has opened the door and no one can shut it. Today we come to the last church, Laodicea, a church that is living in denial about its true state. It is filled with self-confidence and self-sufficiency. It is marked by the poverty of riches, or one might call it the poverty of self-reliance, self-reliant poverty. Let's read this section and then we will uh, look at the church in Laodicea. Beginning in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church in Laodicea, the city of Laodicea, was located about 43 miles southeast of Philadelphia. It was about 100 miles from Ephesus. So when you make that semicircle, it's about 100 miles across to Ephesus. It was the most prominent of three cities, and apparently these three cities, you could see one from the other. Um, They were all in uh, the Lycus Valley. The other two were Hierapolis and Colossae. The people there are known as Colossians, and Paul addresses the church in Colossae in his epistle to the Colossians. Uh, Hierapolis was six miles away, Colossae was ten miles away, and Laodicea was in between them. It was a relatively new city, founded in 250 B.C. by Antiochus II. He named it after his wife. Her name was Laodicea, and that's how the city got its name. Because of its location, it was marked by great prosperity. It controlled the trade that passed through that particular region. In 133, it became part of the Roman Empire, and it was under the Romans that Laodicea really blossomed and came into its own. It was a city marked by great prosperity. Now, Jesus, as he speaks to this church, identifies himself in three ways. And as we've seen The way he identifies himself has significance for that particular congregation. First of all, he identifies himself as the Amen. Amen, or Amen, as is more common in the United States, is from a Hebrew word meaning to be firm or steadfast. It is used to express 
certainty. So Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. In other words, whatever promises God has made, they are fulfilled in Christ. They are yes in Christ. So through him, the Amen is spoken to us to the glory of God. That is, the promises are made sure. By the way, just to keep in the back of your mind, usually when you hear promises, I, I don't know about you, but I think in terms of positive things. But I think the promises that we hear from God are not merely positive things, but they are also threats. Um, it's not just the good stuff, if you wish, that is promised by God, but there are also threats if we are disobedient. And that, I think, is important as we go through this particular letter. Uh, Amen has come to be used in hymns, in creeds, in prayers. It has a sense of, so be it. I agree with what is being said. And if you look at the Old Testament carefully, uh, it becomes clear that to say Amen is, in essence, the same as taking an oath. You know, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? In the Old Testament, someone would say, Amen. I agree. So be it. I am taking that particular oath. For example, and this digresses a bit, but if you follow along, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gives instructions. Once you guys get into the Promised Land, there are two mountains there, Ebal and Gerizim, and Ebal will be the Mount of Cursing, Gerizim is the Mount of Blessing, and the Levites are to stand there on Ebal, and they are to read certain things. And when they read them, you are to respond by saying, Amen. So, let me read part of it. The Levites shall recite to all the people of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an idol, a thing detestable to the Lord, the work of the craftsman's hands, and sets it up in secret. Then all the people shall say, Amen. And twelve times we hear this expression, Cursed is the person who does, and then the thing is given. And the people are to say, Amen. So be it. We agree. We swear that those things will not happen. In the book of Numbers, the use of Amen is made even clearer. Uh, in what is certainly an intriguing chapter, uh, Numbers chapter 5, there is a procedure given when a man suspects that his wife has cheated on him, that she has been unfaithful to him. There's a certain thing that they're supposed to do, and they go to the priest, and he, the priest is to give her something to drink. And then he says to her, May the Lord cause your people to curse and denounce you when he causes your thigh to waste away and your abdomen to swell. May this water that brings a curse into your body so that your abdomen swells and your thigh wastes away. Then the woman is to say, Amen, so be it. In other words, if I have been unfaithful to my husband, then this water that I'm drinking, may it cause these terrible things to happen to me. So Amen has the sense of weight to it. It isn't something that is to be said very lightly, very casually. It is something that has real significance. We are agreeing with what is being said. By the way, the background that I was raised in, Fundamental Baptist, it was not uncommon to hear people say Amen. When you, during the sermon, when somebody would say something they would agree with, they would say, Amen. And that's nice. But I think we need to understand that there's a weight that comes with it. It is not something to be said casually. So that in our passage, when we are told that Jesus is 
the Amen. That's not a small thing. That is not an insignificant thing. The resurrected Christ is the guarantee that things will happen. He is the Amen. He is the so be it. And when he says something is going to happen, it in fact will happen. The second way he identifies himself is as the faithful and true witness. And we saw this in chapter 1. This is part of the designation of who Christ is. Over 20 years ago, I, I preached on this particular passage, and I mentioned that a, a witness is to have three qualities. He must have first-hand knowledge of that to which he testifies. He has to have seen it with his own eyes. Secondly, he must be competent to reproduce and relate this to others. And thirdly, he must be willing to make this testimony known faithfully and truthfully. And in this light, we would say, yes, Jesus is the faithful and true witness. He knows what is going on. He says, I know your deeds. He is competent to reproduce this, and he is willing to do so, to say to the church in Laodicea, you've got real problems. But I would remind you of what we saw in chapter 1, that the faithful witness is to be seen in terms of Scripture and not simply in terms of our culture. That is, in the Old Testament, a witness would not simply get up on the stand and say, yes, I saw this person commit this crime. They must participate in the punishment, in the execution of this person. Now today, we think of witnesses as, as putty, as clay, that the defense attorney or the prosecutor will just get your testimony to go this way or that way. And so, I don't know about you, but if the thought of being a witness in a trial terrifies me, because... I don't know that I'll be able to tell the truth because the, the, the attorneys will be sort of manipulating me as I give my testimony. Not in God's world. In Scripture, under God's law, the witness speaks the truth and then the witness participates in the punishment for that person. By the way, don't you think that would cut down on perjury quite a bit? Uh, because you have to tell the truth and then you have to punish that person yourself. And if you've seen someone commit a capital offense, then you must help put that person to death. Christ is the faithful and true witness. He knows what's going on in Laodicea. He is the Amen. He has the right and the authority to execute judgment on these people. Thirdly, we see that he is the ruler of God's creation. The King James has the beginning of God's creation. And the word in Greek actually refers to origin or ruler. It can be either one. Paul dealt with this in his letter to the Colossians. By the way, that's somewhat important. Um, something maybe I knew before and I'd forgotten. Um, but in Colossians chapter 4, Paul writes, After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans. So what Paul wrote to the Colossians, the Laodiceans also heard. By the way, he also wrote a letter to the Laodiceans, but that has not survived. That is not a part of Scripture. But this is what Paul wrote to the Colossians, and the Laodiceans had heard it. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or, or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So, Jesus wants to make very clear to the Laodiceans, you remember what Paul wrote to you? That's me. I am the ruler. I am the source of all things. I am the ruler of God's creation. In this letter, he comes to bear witness against his church. A church about which we hear nothing positive. You know, even Sardis, which was a mess, had a few undefiled believers, a few undefiled members. The church in Laodicea, we hear nothing positive about them. And the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the rule of God's creation, when he speaks, when he executes judgment, he has the authority to do so. Now what do we see about the church in Laodicea? What is it that Jesus says about them? He knows their deeds. His judgment is that they are neither hot nor cold. And he wishes that they were one or the other. Instead, they're just lukewarm. This is one of those passages that has really been widely misunderstood, in part because people don't know the context, or they sort of hot, cold, they give it their own meanings, and so they distort what is being said here. Many people think that hot refers to being enthusiastic, that you have the Holy Spirit, and that you're on fire for God. That's even an expression that is used. While cold refers to the fact that you've, you're backslidden. You're not with it anymore. Maybe you don't go to church. You don't pray like you should. You don't read your Bible. So you're cold. So you're either a hot Christian or a cold Christian. And that if you're lukewarm, you're sort of in between. You can't make up your mind. You go to church every so often. You read your Bible every so often. and Pray once in a while. And, and Jesus seems to be saying, from this point of view, you know, I wish either you were on fire for me or that you were totally backslidden. And so it would seem that, that the Lord prefers disobedience to indifference. That if you're lukewarm, that you're indifferent. And, and Jesus would rather that you, no, just forget it. You know, don't, don't even bother. I remember years ago, many years ago, uh, when I first came out to Los Angeles, I came across, I bumped into someone who had been attending our church for a while and had stopped attending. And um, I asked, we missed you, where have you been? And the response was, oh, I'm backsliding. And I, you know, I was like, oh. you know, first of all, if that's true, I don't know that you should be telling the pastor that. Um, and you shouldn't be saying it almost like as a, a badge of honor. But over the years, I've come to realize that many people have misunderstood this to say, well, if I'm not going to be on fire for God, I might as well be backsliding. I mean, don't be in between. You know, either really go for it or just, or not. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what he's saying. And the people in Laodicea, I think they understood perfectly what, what Jesus was saying to them. It's because of the geography of Laodicea. As I mentioned, Laodicea was one of three cities in a vicinity. Um, ten miles away was uh, Colossae. It was at the foot of high mountains, and so the water that came into Colossae was really cold. One might say almost ice cold. Very refreshing water. Hierapolis, on the other side, was on a plateau located amidst hot mineral springs. In Colossae, one could be refreshed with cold mountain water. 
icy water from the mountains. And Hierapolis, they had mineral baths, where if you had aches and pains, you know, if your back was bothering you, you go to Hierapolis and sit in the hot mineral spring water and become refreshed. Um, get soothed, get those aches out. So Hierapolis has the mineral springs. Colossae has that icy mountain stream water. What does Laodicea have? Well, its water was neither hot nor cold. It was rather the water of the Lycus River, water that was said to be nauseous and undrinkable. In fact, uh, there are ruins, remains of an aqueduct, and as best we can tell, water had to be brought into Laodicea. For all its prosperity, it didn't have the basic necessity of life. It didn't have water. It lacked water to drink, and it did not have healing waters as Hierapolis did as well. And the church in Laodicea had the exact same problem. It had nothing to offer unbelievers. Nothing to refresh like cold water. Nothing to heal like hot water. It was just there. It was lukewarm. Have you ever had to soak, like if you twist your ankle, or you twist something and you put it in cold water, that's to keep it from swelling. And then after a while, you put it in hot water, water to soothe it. What if you put it in lukewarm water? Nothing. You're just getting wet. It's, you're not doing anything of value. This was the church in Laodicea. Did not present the refreshing message of the gospel like cold water. It did not present the healing message of the gospel like the mineral springs at Hierapolis. And the book of Proverbs is a wonderful verse. Um, like a cup of cold water is news from a distant land. You know, we have the gospel. It should be like a refreshing drink of water. Cold water. But Laodicea doesn't have that. And the consequences are, are rather severe. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You know, those of you who like to drink coffee, I mean, now iced coffee seems to be all the rage. I think a lot of people prefer hot coffee. What about lukewarm coffee? Yeah, spit it out. And Jesus says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. By the way, the language is very Old Testament here. We find this in the book of Leviticus, in which God tells the children of Israel that if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. A couple chapters later, keep all my decrees and laws and follow them so that the land I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. That is, God's creation sort of just is repulsed by people's disobedience. Here it is not the land. It is the resurrected Christ, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation who is going to spit them out. Now, we need to be clear about something. There is hope for this church. Um, the fact that a letter is addressed to it, I think, is significant. Jesus says, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. That is, he hasn't done it yet. That there is, there is hope that they can, in fact, correct the situation. Jesus tells them why they are lukewarm, and then he presents the things they need to do in order to correct the situation. So while nothing good is said about this congregation, this is not a letter without hope. It is a letter, in fact, filled with hope. What is the cause for the lukewarmness? 
In a word, I think it is self-sufficiency. It's actually two words we hyphenate. Self-sufficiency. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. And you might put in parenthesis, including God. I don't need anything. I am rich, I have wealth, and do not need a thing. Laodicea was a wealthy city. It was the center of banking in Asia Minor. By the way, we know that Cicero, uh, the great Roman politician, was passing through in 51 BC, and that's where he cashed his checks. Laodicea was the place you went to cash your checks. Twice in the first century AD, Laodicea was devastated by earthquakes. In 17 AD, the same earthquake that devastated Sardis and Philadelphia destroyed Laodicea as well. And as I told you before, Caesar, Augustus, uh, exempted them from taxes for five years. He gave them money to rebuild the city, each of these cities. In 60 AD, Laodicea was hit by another earthquake and was completely destroyed. This time, assistance was offered again by Caesar. Aid was offered and Laodicea said, no, thank you. We don't need any help. We will rebuild our city ourselves. Tacitus, the Roman historian, says Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. Nobody helped Laodicea. Stand back. We can take care of this ourselves. And I would say that the same attitude was prevalent in the church there as well. They believed that they were self-sufficient. They needed no help from man nor from God. Jesus knows better. He sees to the heart of the matter. They think they are rich, and in fact, they are poor, wretched, and pitiful. One could make the case that the church in Laodicea, like Laodicea, suffered from what has now come to be known as affluenza. Uh, This is a term that has been coined to describe late 20th century North American syndrome, a North American syndrome. It has been defined as an array of psychological maladies such as isolation, boredom, passivity, and lack of motivation engendered in adults, teenagers, and children by the possession of great wealth. That is, at the end of the 20th century, America is prosperous. We are affluent. And as we've seen in an earlier study, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy or being affluent. It is the attitude that comes with it. And the attitude that comes with it oftentimes is not only self-sufficiency, but boredom, um, passivity. Hey, everything's fine. Don't bother me. My life is fine. The Laodiceans were living in unreality. Jesus says to them, you do not realize. You don't see the truth of things. The faithful and true witness, what does he know? That you are wretched pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This is their true condition. But they don't see it. They don't get it. What is it that they should do? Well, in verses 18 through 20, Jesus provides a solution. If you look at verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Now we might just read over this rather quickly, but notice something. 
Jesus, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, who sees nothing good in this church, says, I counsel you. He doesn't say, I command you. That's what I would expect from the ruler of God's creation. That's what I would expect from the Amen, the so be it. No, we hear gentleness here, a tenderness as he speaks to the church in Laodicea. I advise you, this is my counsel to you, that they are to buy three things. And these three things, by the way, match the strong points of that culture in that day. By the way, the idea of buying something of value from God is found in the Old Testament. There's this wonderful passage in Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You should recognize that there's a certain irony there. Calling on those who have no money to buy. And then to buy something that has no cost. And the intent, I think, what is being said is not the buying. We're so much about capitalism, consumer capitalism. We hear the word buy, that's what we think. It is, in fact... A calling to come to God. Four times in that passage we read the word come. The intent, what is being described as the grace of God. It is water to the thirsty. It is that which costs God dearly to provide. It is in a real sense priceless. But he offers it to us. Here in, I, here in Revelation, the focus is buy from me. Not from the culture, not from what surrounds you, but come to me and buy from me. And the transaction is not a conventional purchase, and one writer puts it so well. It is for only those who cannot pay may partake. In other words, if you have money, don't bother. But those who have nothing are those who may buy from Christ that which he offers. And what should they buy? What should they get from him? Gold refined in the fire. And the language here recalls what, Paul write, or what Peter writes in his first epistle. So that your faith of greater value or greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by the fire, may be proved genuine. Jesus spoke of the true riches. The gold here is the gospel. White clothes to wear. This, I think, spoke volumes to them. Gold, their banking industry. The white clothes, their clothing industry. Laodicea was world famous for a black wool that it produced. Uh, apparently there was a breed of sheep that in Phrygia, around that area, uh, that produced wool that was uh, violet, glossy, dark. It was very soft wool. And the cloth that came out of Laodicea, as I said, was world famous. The Laodicean church thinks they're fine. And Jesus says, guess what, guys? You guys are naked. You need someone to put some clothes on you. And here, let me put on you white clothes. The white clothes, by the way, as we go along in Revelation, you will see uh, what this refers to. At this point, let it suffice to say that this is what Christ provides. And thirdly, to put salve on your eyes. Laodicea was famous for its medical facilities. They had a medical school. They were known for two kinds of medicines. One for sore ears 
And you can guess what the other one was for. For your eyes. They produced uh, a medicine that was shipped all over the world at that time in tablet form. And when you got it in the mail, you would grind it up and you would put it on your eyes. And Jesus says, listen, you, you people who live in a city famous for eye salve, you need to buy from me. So you can see the truth of who you are, who you are, so that you might be able to see. To the church that is wretched, pitiful, and poor, Jesus counsels them, buy from me so you can become rich. To the church that is naked, Jesus counsels them to buy from me so you can cover your shameful nakedness. To the church that is blind, Jesus counsels them to buy from me so that you can see. Now these words, I assume because I don't hear them as being directed at me particularly, but at those people over there, the Laodiceans. But if, you, if these were directed to you, they might seem to be very harsh, very strong words. But in verse 19, we find that Jesus loves the Laodiceans. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. He loves them. That's why he's writing this letter. It isn't because he hates them. He isn't simply trying to rob them of any self-esteem they might have. He's not simply trying to, I don't know, make them feel bad about themselves. He loves them. And therefore he calls on them to be in earnest and to repent. Then we come to verse 20. A verse that I think is probably... Most people, if they know one verse from the book of Revelation, this is it. But it is oftentimes taken out of context. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And now, it suddenly becomes clear. Why did the Laodiceans think they were self-sufficient? Because Jesus was outside the church. They were having church without Jesus. And you know what? This is going to sound strange, but sometimes it's a lot easier and more convenient to have church without Jesus. Because when Jesus comes to church, the thing he points out to us is our insufficiency. When we look at the person of Christ and we realize that Christ died for us, then that should trigger us to realize, oh, then I must have done something wrong. I must need something. And when we hear of Jesus sending the Holy Spirit, then that should remind us, oh, I'm not sufficient in myself to do the things that I need to do. Well, the Laodiceans had very conveniently sort of put Jesus outside the church, and that's why they felt self-sufficient. We are rich. We are wealthy. We have no need of anything whatsoever. Yeah, they'd put, some, they'd put Jesus outside the church and somebody had turned off the lights. And these people were living in complete darkness. They were living a lie. They were living in denial. It is the presence of Christ that I think instantly and constantly makes us aware of our true condition, of our poverty, our nakedness, and our blindness. By the way, many people have taken this verse to mean that this is what Jesus does when he wants to come into somebody's heart. That if somebody's not a Christian, uh, that Jesus is outside the door saying, come in, I I want you to become a Christian, I want to come into your heart. 
That's not what is being said here. He's outside a church, the church in Laodicea, and he wants to come in. What a tragic picture to have a Christian church without the Christ, to have Christ outside the church. But all is not lost because Christ is not simply outside the door standing there. He is knocking on the door and he talks because he says, if anyone hears my voice. Jesus longs to be with the people in the church of Laodicea. He wants to commune with them. And I would remind you of what he said to the church in Sardis. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you do not know what time I will come to you. Not here. Here, Jesus is outside the door and he's knocking. And he's talking and he's saying, I want to come in. And if you let me in, we will have such sweet communion and fellowship. Fellowship, by the way, that is described in terms of eating. I will eat with him and he with me. But you know what? If you let Christ into the church, he makes us aware that we are not sufficient on our own. But we aren't. So why not have him come in so that we can see the truth of who we are? And in verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And I would remind you again that where in Paul's writings we hear of faith, in John's writings we hear of overcoming. In 1 John 5, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. That is, everyone who has faith in Christ is an overcomer. And in the book of Revelation, it isn't victory versus defeat. It is victory versus treason. Will you stand with Christ? Jesus says, if you stand with me, I am the overcomer. I overcame. If you stand with me, then you will sit with me on my throne just as I sat with my father on his throne. What Paul is speaking of here is salvation, as he's been doing for the six previous letters. Let me read to you what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this not, this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul tells the Ephesians, we are... If we have put our faith in Christ, the gift of God to believe, we are now seated with Christ. In John's words, we are overcomers. And this is the gift of God. If we feel self-sufficient, self-reliant, then we are not overcomers. We've gone over to the dark side. We've gone over to the enemy side. But if we are in earnest and repent and let Christ back into the church, then we are people of faith. The night before Jesus died, he said to his disciples, and John records this in his gospel, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. We could take a deep breath right then. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's tie this together. 
Of the seven churches that we have studied, I fear that the church in Laodicea mirrors the situation in the United States today. Americans are by nature a can-do people. To some, this reflects our self-confidence. I mean, give us a problem, we will solve it. To other people, it seems to speak or smack of arrogance. In either case, self-confidence or arrogance, for the church, it is fatal, or it can be fatal. Because like the church in Laodicea, we're like, we got it made. We're cool. We've got it. We're rich. We have no need of help from anyone at all. And though, and though we don't mean not God, of, of course we need God's help. The attitude actually, in fact, in many ways, excludes God. I've told you this story before. When I was in Bible college, we were, we were being taught how to organize your Sunday school. And it was called Sunday School Administration. And that if you organized it right, things could go very well. And our teacher said, yes, a friend of mine, he said, you know, my church, my Sunday school is so organized that we could run it for two years without the Holy Spirit. I fear that many churches are being run without the Holy Spirit because in America, I think we, we're, we can do. Give us, you have a problem, bring it on. We will solve it. And we don't recognize our true poverty, our true nakedness, and our blindness because Christ has been put outside. When he comes in, have you ever wondered why it is that a perfect man came into the world and people killed him? I mean, if you have a perfect person, why would you kill a perfect person? Because the perfect points out our imperfections, and we hate that. It's like if you're wearing a white shirt, or you think it's white, and then somebody comes in and their shirt's whiter, yours begins to look dingy. Perfection comes, and our imperfections are there for all to see. We are not to be self-sufficient. We are to trust in Christ alone to sustain us. I fear that the church in America is like the church in Laodicea in that it is lukewarm. Because the, the question keeps being asked, and we hear it a lot, we've heard a lot the last several weeks with uh, the death of the Pope, his, his funeral, and now the new Pope. People are like, why can't the church be more like the world? Why does it have to be so different? As remarking in Sunday school, I think from my fair lady, you know, why can't a woman be more like a man? You know, why can't the church just be like the world? Well, first of all, I think we're far more like the world when we realize. But when we become like the world, then we're lukewarm. We don't have the cool, refreshing water of the gospel. We don't have the heating, the healing power of the gospel like the mineral springs from Hierapolis. We're just wet. We're just there. We have no value whatsoever. Because... You know, if you put your foot in hot water, it's hot. You know, your first reaction is to pull it out. You have to sort of get used to it. And the same way, if you're going to soak your foot, if you've got a sprained ankle in cold water, it's cold. When we tell people the gospel, their first reaction is, is to jerk back. The gospel is offensive. The answer is not to become lukewarm so they can tolerate it. The answer is to be faithful to that which Christ has given us. We are to recognize the poverty of self-reliance. You self, are you self-reliant? Then you are poor indeed.
Let's pray together. Father, I fear that like Laodicea in America, we, we are rich, we are self-confident, we don't need anybody's help. And the process, Jesus has been put outside the church. And yet, in tender mercy, he, stand there, he stands there and knocks and longs to come in to meet with his people. May we take to heart the things that we have talked about today. May we be in earnest and repent and recognize the refreshing, the cool water of the gospel as well as the mineral springs of the gospel will bring healing. And while others may reject this, the answer is not for us to compromise, but to stand true. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness and the ruler of your creation. Now we ask that your grace, your spirit, would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory majesty power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore Amen